Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Hallandbeck. Dr. Stuart Bitkoff holds a doctorate in education and is an avid student of Sufi mysticism and the perennial philosophy. He is the author of The Ferryman's Dream, A Commuter's Guide to Enlightenment and Sufism for the Western Seeker, which was nominated as Book of the Year by Forward Magazine in the adult nonfiction religious category. Dr. Bitkoff is a frequent contributor to Sufism and Inquiry and Sacred Journey magazine and writes for multiple online entities, including the Philadelphia Spirituality Examiner, Wisdom Magazine, New Age Journal, and more. His latest book is Beyond the River's Gate, a collection of spiritual Q&A on life's most essential questions. Stuart, welcome back to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Care. Thank you for having me back and giving me the opportunity to talk about the new book. Uh, this is something that a little bit different, I think, for people, um, certainly, to find a book that's about 100 questions and answers, and that, that's in part one. And in part two, there's all these observations, poems, and little essays that supplement the material in part one. Um, so it's a two-part piece. I tried something a little bit different, and the book, as you've already indicated, is called Beyond the River's Gate, and it takes its title from up one of the poems, one of the questions and answers is in the form of a poem in the book. Yes, thank you so much for that, Stuart. I think in the, let, let's just touch base for a moment uh, for our listeners, uh, kind of leading up to your book, on the basics of Sufism, for those who may not be familiar. Could you share a little bit um, about Sufism and uh, how it evolves and your experience of Sufism? I'm not the greatest historian of Sufism. Um, Sufism has been been called the religion of the heart. Um, The heart as being the center of our soul and our consciousness. And Sufis have been called lovers of God. And for the Sufi, the religion is very simple. It's loving God. Um, the word Sufism itself is of recent vintage in the late 1800s, I believe, in, um, in uh, Germany or in Europe. Uh, the, the word comes from the word Suf or wool. And so followers of this particular way of believing had a woolen uh, robe that they wore. So they were called Sufis, uh, and, the, and their belief system was called Sufism. But the word Sufi, according to Idris Shah, is much older. It existed for thousands of years, and it has something to do with the mentation, you know, the saying of the word. It helps with a, a mystical state of consciousness. But Sufis are really all about mysticism and the inner journey and the inner experience of God, the light, or whatever holding the universe up together and what followers of this path try to do is connect directly with this energy this presence which is in everything and by connecting with this energy and presence using it in daily life to help make the world and themselves a little bit better so I became interested in this probably in my mid-twenties one day this teachers told my friend that he wanted to meet me and certainly religion had not been something that was high on my priority high on my list I was studying for a doctorate down at NYU I had just uh, been promoted at work and I just um, I think we were expecting our first child so I had mm. a lot of other priorities that's a that's a very busy time to have the have an intervention <laughs> looking for this it was one of those things that just reached out and grabbed me. And I haven't been the same since. Now, Stuart, um, were you raised with any kind of uh, religious upbringing, or was this sort of new to you as an adult? I grew up in New York City, and I was raised Jewish. I was bar mitzvahed when I was 13. 
and not yeah, you know, it's like a lot of people. Um, the day-to-day religion really couldn't hold me. I have had no interest in it. Um, while it while my grandparents, my grandfathers were went to synagogue during the week even, let alone on Saturdays, both grandfathers, they found great comfort in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, I didn't. I was growing up in New York City, and this to me was a very old and not, I couldn't understand it. First of all, we didn't learn to speak Hebrew, and in, in text that we used, on one side you had the Hebrew words, and on the other side, you had the English translation, and all we ever did, we would say the Hebrew words, but we wouldn't connect the translating. So the prayers, all of those kinds of things, it took a while to connect those things, and particularly when you're young, you know, um, why am I learning this kind of a thing? Why am I learning about things that are 2,000 years old? I'm trying to survive on the streets of Manhattan, and these old stories about uh, heroes in the Bible really just didn't hold my attention. It just had very little meaning for me. But uh, That part part was always an unsettled part. I couldn't reconcile until like my my mid-twenties. But but Stuart, couldn't that be said about any, uh, you know, text or practice that's 2,000 years old? Because in a way, you know, so is the Sufi tradition. Right. And uh, I think, once again, because I was raised in this, this was my only experience. And what we were taught was that um, the Jews are right, Catholics are wrong. In those days, we weren't even talking about Muslims or Hindus or anything like that. This was, um, you know, 1950s in New York City, 1960s. And so we lived in an insulated, like, neighborhood. And so my only experience, while it was a cosmopolitan city and there were people all from all different walks of life, you know, my contact with them was limited. You know, we grew up in in a neighborhood with a synagogue and and other ethnic groups lived on the fringes in other neighborhoods. And so my, my experience was this experience of religion. And to me, it was dry. I mean, um, and that's the only thing that I could look at. And then plus there were experiences that that were distasteful. You know, I had encounters with um, you know, members of the synagogue were supposed to help me with, with my uh, bar mitzvah that were, you know, just, they just were distasteful kinds of things. But it could be said for any kind of learning experience, anything that's 2,000 years old, but when you're 12, when you're 8, 9 years old, it's a little bit harder. At least it was harder for me. You know, I learned as I got older that the, the failing was really more with me. I mean, for because for some people, this experience was wonderful. It was very good for them, but not for me. Yes, I, I understand that, and that, that really resonates. Thank you so much, um, Stuart. So now here is a mystical tradition um, that knocks on your door one day, and you respond to it greatly. Can you share with us some of, you know, what is your experience of Sufism, and how has it affected your life? This time I was in my mid-twenties. I had been, I had been searching in a lot of different ways for um, a lot of different things. I didn't realize that there was an empty place inside. I mean, by the time I was 25, I, as I said, I, I was in love. I'd been married. I, I found a career that I was interested in, and we were having a family. And my life was pointed in certain directions, but certainly the period between, whatever, 10 to 25 years old, as, as like the same with many people, there was a lot of emptiness. A lot of it didn't make sense to me um, because of my nature. Um, the things that people were teaching me about um, and trying to explain to me, I remember my father showing me a list of like 100 different occupations that one could do in New York State and said, uh, why don't you pick one and get an interest in one? So I looked at the list. I gave it back to him. I said, look, there's nothing here that interests me. He got quite frustrated by that. And as I got to know myself and I got to realize who I was, you know, by my mid-20s and late-20s and certainly when this mystical happening or mystical experience or mystical um, caress was placed upon me in my life, it was the missing piece. 
like I said, I had I married, I had a job, I was going to school. So different things had fallen in place. But there was a a long period of emptiness till these things happened. Um, a hunger, if you will. Uh, the Sufis call it the, the great hunger. And while love and job filled some of it, it couldn't fill it completely. And um, so when I met the spiritual teacher who was at work, it was uh, somebody, we were working in a psychiatric hospital at the time, and this gentleman came from Pakistan, he was a physician. And, you know, it took place in that room, turned my life upside down. And once again, I'd been married, I had been sex, drugs, all of this was going on around me, and I had experimented. So there were lots of different places my interest had gone in those years of searching. And so when this you know, experience of the oneness of the creation, the caress uh, by the creator, the caress and connection with the light um, was given, I knew that this was unlike anything that I had ever seen before. Um, it seemed as though the light that you found or was connected with, uh, that's the light that's going to be running through your marriage and the child and the work and everything else that helps to connect everything. I wonder if that's what helped, you know, sort of put things within a, a really good context of meaning. Well, at the time, I didn't give it in those terms because at that time, because it was a, an experience where I was literally lifted up and connected with everything in the universe. And we were sitting in an office, and I felt connected to, there was this light emanating, pulsating, felt connected to the chairs, the desk, the teacher, other students who were in the room, and we wrote on this much like if, if you can imagine yourself riding a wave on a surfboard, and we were just, everything was one. It was all full of light. I saw everything from that moment. I saw it, that light reached far into the past and far into the future, and I was with that. It, it was unlike anything that I'd ever experienced before, and after that, this initial session, the teacher told me that the, um, this experience would last for 24 hours and then it, because it was a gift. Uh, some people might call it an initiation, but it was a gift. And so for 24 hours, I, I went home, I worked, every, I was connected to everything. I saw the light in everything. I, I felt one with it. I knew who I was. I knew where I began. I knew where I ended, where I was going and that I knew that I would spend the rest of my life trying to serve this light, if you will, and connect with it and be one with it. And so that was, you know, the, begin the, the overt beginning of my spiritual searching journey, whatever, while I learned that the 25 years before that were, you know, all a setup for, this, for that moment. Uh, but that took time to put that in perspective. I mean, that took all years to put that in perspective. But I knew because of the pulling at my heart and my consciousness that this was where I came from, where I was going, and I was going to spend my life serving this, this entity, this energy, this light, whether it was at work, whether it was through my marriage, or whether it was through writing. And this writing piece was not something I sought. I really... Um, you're a writer and you know how difficult that was and uh, here I am 25 I'm struggling with things like dissertations and theses and I'm having a hard enough time and one day in in our teaching sessions with with, with this teacher he suggests that well maybe somebody will write down what we talk about here and share it with other people someday and I'm sitting there under my breath saying God I hope it's not me <laughs> hint hint <laughs> Hint, hint. Well, but you, you bring up a really good uh, a point here. Let's talk about the process of writing because, yes, we, you know, we, we both write and there's different kinds of writing. There's your dissertation type writing and then there's the spiritual writing of the, like the book you, the books that you write. And I know for me that writing can sometimes make a it kind of a it's a shift of which hemisphere of the brain I'm using. <laughs> like I can I can I can edit on a computer, literally, you know, using a keypad on the and, and edit that way. But if I'm writing poetry, for example, 
which is a different kind of writing, um, I need to have the pen in my hand. Uh, it's not something I can create necessarily uh, originally on the computer, although I can edit it there. So let's talk a little bit about this process of spiritual writing. Does it, how does it differ from other writing for you? First of all, I think a lot of you, what you're saying is for many years there were no computers. People may not realize that. There were typewriters, but most people wrote, you know, manually. And certainly for many years I wrote many things that way, and I edited uh, years later on a word processor and then finally to a computer. <clears throat> Excuse me. But for many years it was sitting and writing. And basically what would happen, the easiest way for me to explain this is like a different station in my brain or in my consciousness would come on. I would see something and a different level of energy would happen inside of me. I, I usually relate it to cable television. I mean, it's, it, something happened in my consciousness. You know, I'd look at a flower and then all of a sudden the flower's connected to the whole meadow, the whole meadow's connected to the universe, and then all of a sudden words started coming out. And, um, and so that was one way that I would write. And many times... I tried to deny that because writing is a lot of work. And then also when I shifted into that state of consciousness, it burnt me up. <laughs> you know, as I've gotten older, I could put words to this. My vibration was raised higher. I was in tune to everything. And that used up, a, while it was one type of energy, it used up another type of energy. So when I would go into these modes and sometimes they would last for me on and off for days or weeks, I would fight them. I don't want to do this anymore, I would say. And that would make me crazier. It would just make me go, go bonko. I, you know? So not to write something or not to express it, um, I fought it too many times, and over the years I learned just to go with it, and that it was easier for me that way. And that is different than... What most writers talk about, okay, we've got to sit down and edit this. Well, that takes a lot of energy. Also, the writing piece for me for a lot of times till I got used to this would just disrupt me and just make me tired And because it was coming from another place, let alone another way of seeing things. Um, you know, as I've, during the years, I've read different accounts of how mystics would write that they would be taken to another place and come back to this reality, singing the songs and the wonders of this other place, and so they could share it with mankind or womankind. And that's exactly what happened to me. What a, what a great uh, sharing. Thank you for that. And you've written some great books. Can, can you share what distinguishes your books from each other? first of all, and you can share a little bit about them before we get to your new book in a little bit. And, and also, who's your audience, Stuart? One of the things that I felt inside of me is that if humanity was ever going to live together in harmony, and if this was ever going to happen, there had to be a unifying principle, a unifi unifying connectiveness, more than just, okay, we're all one family. Because that's not working. I mean, the United Nations try to do that, all of that. So we have this thing called the mystical experience where, the, where it lifts you up, throws you down, and says, you're going to do what I tell you to do. And so to me, this connection, this knowing, this whatever, is the only hope for humanity. That was the way I looked at the world. So to me, it became essential that if we were going to live in a world where we were unified. Now, I worked in a psychiatric hospital with very sick people, among the sickest people in New York City, statistically. And these were castaways from their own family and castaways from our own society. And to me, on one hand, I'm seeing people who are suffering so, and then in the larger world, how is all of this going to come together, made whole again, and we're going to live together. And the only thing that could do this was this mystical energy, this light of God, if we all experienced it. 
So my sharing of that, if you will, my mission, if you will, with all of this is saying, hey, look, there's something greater than us all. And once you've experienced it and tasted it and know it, then we can get on with living. We can get on with sharing this planet and making it a better place. And so that's what pushes me to write these things, if you will, this energy. And because these books don't sell a lot. <laughs> you know, you don't make money writing this kind of stuff. And so my teacher very early on said to me, you know, the, the proof or the outcome of your writing will be not how many books you sell or how big the book will be, but how much joy it brings to the hearts of the servants of God. So what I began to learn was, just like I was learning in the psychiatric hospital, if you can open one person's heart or help one person, then you've accomplished something. And as I said, while it sounds grand and grandiose that this is the only hope for humanity, if you will, is that to have this kind of experience and connection because you can't deny it. Once you've had it, it changes the universe. You know, there's something greater than you that you're part of and you have to help people rise higher. And so the books are about that, like the, 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 um, the book Sufism for Western Seekers, which won that forward book of the year kind of award. It came in honorable mention. Um, that's about my experience in two mystical schools. And that one, a lot of people like that for a lot of different reasons because it's a firsthand um, encounter. There aren't too many written firsthand encounters of what goes on in mystical schools. And that's what that book is about. Um, the next book, The Ferryman's Dream, is my homage to, um, oh, what, what was his name? Uh, well, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. When I read that book, that changed the way I looked at the world, Siddhartha, the book, The Story of the Buddha. And Herman Hesse won the Nobel Prize for Literature for Magister Ludi, not this, but the book Siddhartha and the Ferryman and, and all of that, that, if you ask me what my favorite book was, that would be certainly one of them. For the longest time, that was my favorite book, along with The Prophet. And so The Ferryman's Dream is about Vasudeva, who is the ferryman who encounters uh, somebody who wants to take from him and, and um, hurt his reputation. And so The Ferryman's Dream is about that. And it's very poetic, and it's my attempt to set the stage the way Herman has set the stage with um, Siddhartha. Um, now this book here, Beyond the River's Gate, a little bit different. Um, in mystical schools, and certainly the ones that, that in the West, a lot of what goes on is question and answer. You ask your teacher a question, the teacher may or may not answer it. Teacher may say it's not important, or he may answer it. And one time, uh, my first teacher said to me that, or said to us that, look, if the teaching was being presented in a different culture, we wouldn't be using questions and answers like this the way we use it here. It would be mind to mind. It would be all on a nonverbal level. So when presenting a question, the question represents in this book the first I guess I use 100 questions, represents the rational mind. The rational mind wants to know why, why are there so many religions? How come all these religious people can't get along with each other? Um, is there a God? So the rational mind has all sorts of questions, and that's its job, to ask the question. The inner knowing, if you will, is the, is the answer. What, what the Sufi or what the mystic tries to do is to connect with their own inner consciousness, which is connected to the higher consciousness in the universe, and that's where the answers come from. So the first part of asking all of these questions that we ask, what happens after you die? Is there reincarnation? And then the, the answer, if you will, comes from the inner knowing.
And that was the setup for the book. And that's wonderful. And I'm going to stop you right there for a moment because we're halfway through the program. And I'm just going to take a quick break for a station ID. And we're going to come back to discuss um, your book uh, when we return from the break. Can you just stay on the line for a moment, Stuart? This is Care Hallenbeck, and you're listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to spiritually-based living and to religious tolerance. When we return from the break, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Stuart Bitkoff, student of Sufism and author of Beyond the River's Gate. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Godspeed Institute. You're live with CARE, and we're speaking with student of Sufism and author Dr. Stuart Bitkoff about his latest book, Beyond the River's Gate. Now, Stuart, we were just talking a bit about the the structure of the book and, of course, of Sufism in the first part of the program. Can you share a little more about the structure of this book? Uh, not only that there are many questions, it's like a primer, um, but how did you decide on the questions? Well, there were, you know, through editing, um, I left some questions out. The, the Sufis have a tradition, basically, that there's 99 names of God. And, you know, most gracious is a name, um, most uh, beneficent is a name. And so there's, there's 99 names. And with the 100th name, which is not shared, great power and understanding comes. So when I was trying to figure out, well, how many questions you could ask, because you could probably ask 200 questions and get answers from. Um, and when this energy and when this presentation came through me, it was close to 100. Um, and so that I took the, that tradition with numbering the questions. And so we have 99 or 100 questions. And the, the last one, the hundredth one, is instead of knowing the name of God, the hundredth name is knowing who you are. Once you know who you are, great power comes to you because you know that you're a child of light and that you have another dimension to you. Most people go through this life and they have all kinds of skills, but they don't take the time to develop their spiritual skills. And we all have different spiritual skills. We all have the same spiritual skills, but we all bring with us a different skill set. 
So uh, one of my skill sets is being able to write some of this stuff. Other people, beautiful music. Other people, you know, being a beautiful mother or a beautiful father. It's different skill sets. So the hundredth is knowing who you are, that you're a child of light, a child of the universe, a child of God, and that you have, if you will, a divine mission, which is to come here and experience who you are and help make this world and universe a better place. And so that's how the hundred questions come up. Now, the second part of it is about um, different material which helps support what's going on in the first part. So if, I, if the question is about what happens after death, there's a couple of pieces in, in the second section about might be poems, they might be short vignettes about things of what takes place after death. And the reason that it's not right after the question about death is because we're doing something called discontinuous learning. That sometimes in order to learn something and to be really, really understand something, you need multiple impacts over a period of time. And so that's what I'm setting up in the book. It's, you know, if we, go, if we could all learn things the first time someone brings something up, that would be great. But that's not how we learn the more difficult things. So if I have a presentation about, well, what I think takes place after death, um, I don't expect the reader to say, oh, yes, yeah, Stuart's right on about that. What we were taught was, not to dismiss it, not, autom not to automatically say, nah, that ain't it, or to say, yeah, that is it, but to hold it in the middle ground and come to our own decision about that. So if I have the question about what takes place in the afterlife, later on, after you've forgotten about this and on to other questions and you get to the second part of the book, it comes up again in a different way. And as you were talking there, I was thinking about the hundredth name of God, and I was wondering if anybody actually ever got to know that. And, you know, what if it's a name like, you know, Liam, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and which led me to wonder, um, can you share a little bit, because, you know, at the heart, as we started off talking about, uh, the Sufism is about the heart. And I heard one, um, uh, one of our guests refer to the the woolen part as also making the heart soft as wool. And, you know, when we're talking about God in Sufism or um, as in the mystical way, as, as we're discussing, what is the relationship, this closeness, you mentioned oneness, um, that is going to be experienced? Let's, you know, what is the relationship between the Sufi practitioner and uh, and what we would call God or Allah or love? Um, how does that thread through these questions and answers? Well, once again, it's going to come through the filter of me, how I see this. And once again, there people have been writing books on God and Sufism for thousands of years. And the way that I've come to know this and experience this is that inside each of us, there's this spark of energy. People can call it the life force, call it whatever we want. And that this life force, this spark of energy, is most like God. Um, the energy of the Logos, um, some of the mystics talk about that all the souls come through the idea of man, and Jesus was the son of man. So who, what is this Logos that they're talking about? Well, there's, to us, there's a spiritual energy that holds together the entire universe, the whole world of forms. And inside of each of us, there's a spark of that. We are God in the small g. So there's part of me which is most like this energy. And once that's awakened and I remember who I am and I experience that, that part is always with God on, another, on a spiritual level. So I'm remembering who I am which is this form of energy, and I'm experiencing it, and that is hooked up with, if you will, the Logos, the Spirit of God, this life energy that the uh, astrophysicists are calling string theory, this um, energy that binds together everything. So 
I know who I am. I'm Stuart. You know, I've got kids. I've got grandkids. I've got a new dog. But also there's a part of me that will live on, that is eternal, that is made of the same substance as the life, which is the binding force of the universe. And once you've experienced that and regularly experienced that, um, there's no death. There's only eternal, you know, being one with the beloved. And that's what the mystics talk about. And it's not the kind of thing you can convince somebody about. <laughs> you've got to experience it. That's why the Sufis talk about once you've been in love, you know what love means. I mean, you can sing a hundred love songs, you can write a hundred beautiful poems about love, but it's not until you've been in love do you understand that. So they talk about the moth that wants to fly into the flame to experience what, it, what, what it's like to be with their beloved, to lose its own identity in this burning fire. Um, so there's there's some aspects to life. It's like being a mother or being a father. You can write hundreds of books about it, but until you've done it, <laughs> yeah, until you've done it, it's all theory. <laughs> exactly, right. right? Exactly. And what you come to realize is you yourself are a filter. So your experience, while it's the same as the guy or the woman next to you, it's also different. You're unique, but you're the same. Mm, well said. Well said. I appreciate that. And so, you know, in listening to you talking about, you know, how uh, in this light, then there there is no death and, you know, talking about the eternal nature, I hear, you know, after the years um, of doing this program, I hear the thread, you know, that I, I hear the Buddhists talking to me and I hear, you know, other traditions speaking with me uh, about this, this place that one gets to. So, Perhaps a good place to start in your book would be with this one reflection I'm looking at right now on page 89, which is, of course, the question, why do people disagree and start wars over religious beliefs? And how can both sides be right? And, you know, these kind of questions, you know, although we have t made a very specific, intentional point here of not uh, fighting over religion on this program, we do not get enter into the debates that get that just stymie people, which have very little to do with the heart um, or with love. You know, at, but at the same time, this is a this is a big question that you know we try to address in our way. So, would you like to share from this reading? First part is the question, which you read already, which is our rational mind wanting to know how come people, if they're so religious or so, so saintly or so good, how come they're fighting with each other all the time? And that's what I wanted to know when I was growing up on the streets of New York City. How come the Catholic kids wanted to beat the heck out of the Jewish kids or vice versa? Okay, so the answer comes from the inner knowing. So it begins, first let us keep in mind that people start wars over all kinds of things. Usually the reasons for a war are both complex and simple. These involving economic resources, philosophical religious differences, and behavioral factors like pride and revenge. Okay, I'm going to stop there because I think that says a lot. One, that people start wars over all kinds of things. Property, they want to take over the world, gold, resources, or for pride that somebody said, um, they didn't like their religion or they dishonored somebody. I mean, Helen of Troy, that, that whole story was supposedly that the guy stole the other guy's wife. I mean, people start wars over all kinds of things. And from the viewpoint that I have and what this attempts to explain is that people use religion as a smokescreen to cover over what the real reason for a war is about. War is about money and power. So they use that my religion is better than yours. My way is better than the other way. Now, how can both sides be right? Well, wait till you get married. That was always my best one. I think we need new drapes <laughs> in the um, living room. And I'm looking at the drapes, and I'm saying, well, they look pretty good to me. Now, in this situation, let's put aside whether or not they're afraid or not afraid. 
in a dis, in a dis discussion, can't we both be right? That she thinks we need new drapes, and I think we don't. Now, ultimately, some compromise will be made. Now, when you're fighting a war, you're not compromising. Um, so human behavior is such that you, a lot of times you always think you're right. And what you learn as you live with other people is that they have different views, and two views can be right at the same time. Now, still, we haven't made a decision yet about whether to buy new drapes or not, but in my house, my wife always made that decision. So whether I agreed or disagreed really didn't matter. It was just more or less of uh, an exercise we'd go through, and sometimes she would try to get me to make some decisions about color and that kind of a thing. But in everyday life, we see this all the time. You have a boss. Your boss wants you to do something. You don't think it's the right way to do it. You're going to keep it to yourself because you want to keep your job. So, but human nature is this way, and we use religion as a smokescreen for something else. It it sets off so much um, uh, fire in the in the media. I mean, people gravitate toward the towards arguments about these things and the need to be right, and that's this is where it all gets stymied and connection is rarely made. Um, which is not the case on this program, <laughs> and we enjoy that very much. If there's, a one, if there's a loving force in the universe, are you saying this loving force loves this group better than the other group? You know, that's what you're saying with the religion, and that's what, you see, the Jewish people, they're the chosen ones. I had a hard time with that growing up. Because if I was one of the chosen ones, how come all these other people want to beat me up? Okay, didn't they know that I was one of the chosen ones? And, you know, one neighborhood, we got the Irish Catholics, and that they said, well, you don't believe the same way we do, so you're going to go to hell. Now, I remember when I was young, I was afraid to go into a church. I was afraid God would zap me. Then as I got older, and I had some Catholic friends and some Muslim friends, they had the same fear that if they went into a synagogue, that they would get zapped by God. And that, and I, we may have discussed this before, one of the biggest sticks that religion uses is the fear and reward carrot, which is fear, that we're using fear. Well, if you don't follow my way, bad things are going to happen to you. You don't fight this war, you're going to go to hell. If you do fight this war, you're going to go to heaven. And when you look at that as a motive, just from a human behavioral point of view, it's fear and reward. That's the way corporations motivate people. If you do what your boss says for you to do, you'll keep your job, you might also get rewarded and get promoted. This is how family, strong, familial things are kept together with fear and reward. Now, I'm just talking about this from a behavioral point of view. But it also goes back to what you were starting uh, to say in the beginning of the program regarding, you know, the initial response to, you know, organized religions uh, being this kind of scenario. Um, fear-based, perhaps, you have to do it this way. Uh, it seems to me that your discovery of the myst of mysticism through Sufism uh, was like a, a just a relief. Exactly, that there was another way to experience this other whole part of it that wasn't, that was living, that was alive for me, that was connecting, and then I realized that I was an artist and that, that I could write, and it brought alive a part of me that, the way that I had been taught was, or being taught, just stifled. Now, for other people, this worked wonderfully. It didn't work for me. And what I came to realize, I don't know how many religions there are in the world, 200 plus or whatever. The reason there are so many religions is that people and cultures are different. And within the different religious forms, there's different paths, there's different subsets, and that each person experiences it the same, but they also experience it differently. So if I'm a Reformed Jew 
and we talk, you know, in modern English and say our prayers in modern English, and that's the form I'm using, I still have a unique experience of the Godhead, even though it's similar when I'm in the synagogue with the other people next to me. But the many forms and the many ways of singing this beauty exist because we're different. And when we talk about religion being used as a manipulation, um, you know, political systems, uh, countries use all kinds of things to manipulate people. Mm. Mm. Yes, uh, agreed. And um, and yes, I think uh, you're right. We each have our own gate, as it were, uh, on that river, or our own window into into this. Now, I want to look at also. We still have time, uh, I think, for another exploration on page 111 of your book, which says, the question is, no matter what you assert, how can this be the way the world is supposed to be? It's a real mess out there. How will the mystical view help our modern world? Is there a place for mysticism in times like these? This one's right up my alley. (laughs) So let's hear it. (laughs) Um, It sounds crazy. When I propose this to people, you're saying mystical view, you're talking about a spiritual reality in this crazy world, like a world like New York City or Manhattan or in a psychiatric hospital, let alone what's going on in the Middle East. How can this bring people together? Well, we're we're taught, by and large, is not the total reality. What we're taught as kids, what we're taught as we grow up, is usually a form of conditioning. In order for a culture to thrive and grow, let's talk about the American culture, we were taught that capitalism was the number one thing. That was the best way to go. And that was our, quote, religion. That was the outer form. So there's conditioning. Now that we got older and we saw that these corporations are you know, wreaking havoc on the planet, some of them, we realized that not all of this was completely true. So what the mystical view says is that as part of your education, part of it's been left out. It's this experience of oneness that we're all connected, and the greatest good is achieved by people helping each other. That's the problem with the world. People's, the Sufis talk about the lower urges that, you know, our basic urges that we give into the lower self. The lower self takes care of things like, well, I'm hungry. It takes care of things like sex. It takes care of, well, I'm afraid I'm not going to make enough money to take care of my family. This is all part of our basic nature. It's hardwired into us. And up to a point, it's good because it keeps the thing going. It keeps, the, keeps me going. It keeps the culture going. You know, if we're not culture, we all say everybody's got to work. We've got to get up and contribute. You know, that's how it is. You know, in other cultures, like in a capitalistic rip-off culture, no, well, I'm going to try to steal and get as much money as I can from everybody else because this is the way I do it. So we're all conditioned. And, but part of it has been left out purposefully because people want to manipulate other people. And this other piece is this connectiveness that we're all part of the same family and that in order for us to thrive and be the best of who we can be and that people not be hungry and not die because they don't get simple medical condition, I mean medical care, we need this experience. Now, you could still say, well, Stu, you're like a dreamer here. That's not the way the world is. No, the world isn't like that. But there are plenty of people who are trying to make it that way. And that's the friction. My teacher used to call it the friction that pushes us forward, that makes us want to work and fight for things. You know, um, this pulling in two different directions. It's what makes living and trying to accomplish something, uh, important part of life. Now, the world is yin and yang, but it is also one. We experience this all the time um, through, through this kind of uh, learning. Amen, brother. Yes. You know, um, Stuart, uh, we're speaking with Dr. Stuart Bitkoff, author of the new book, Beyond the River's Gate, 
And as we come towards the end of our conversation, I just wanted to let listeners know that all of your website and contact information will be posted on our homepage shortly at godspeedinstitute.com. And uh, before we wrap up for this program, I just wanted to ask if there were any any final thoughts or prayers or uh, blessings or anything you wanted to share with folks about uh, on their spiritual path. We're all travelers. You know, we're all traveling. We came from someplace. We're here for a while. And then we're going to go someplace else. And while we're here for a while, our job is to have some fun, <laughs> help some other people, and so that we could all connect with our higher self. You're so loving. Thank you so much, uh, Stuart Bitkoff, for being on the program again, and also best wishes with your new book, Beyond the River's Gate. And uh, it's always a pleasure, a distinct pleasure to speak with you on the Godspeed Institute. And I hope we get to speak again soon. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again or send it to someone, simply go to GodspeedInstitute.com. Please send your comments to info at godspeedinstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey. <laughs>